Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennium Money Medical. My name is Dev Raga and I'm your host and in this episode we'll go through the concept of due diligence, particularly when it comes to stocks. Now the concept is something active investors may want to consider and having a systems-based approach will mean you're less likely to miss things when analysing businesses. Now, we can't do this podcast without the support of Altus Financial. As a full-service financial advisory business, they can help you in many ways, whether that be your requirements on general business advice, structuring, and use of multiple entities for tax minimisation or asset protection purposes to protect you for the extra risk we take on as medical professionals or a sounding board on ideas you have on your business. Check out altusfinancial.com.au. Let's get started. If you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. And remember, for those of you that are new to the channel, there are three main aims, education, empowerment, and entertainment. So what is due diligence? It's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot, but what does it actually mean? It's basically a systematic process to investigate, audit, and verify a potential deal. And that deal can be stocks or other equities, property, or business deals such as mergers and acquisitions. What you aim to do is to confirm all the relevant financial information and make sure if there's any questions, then ask those up front and confirm the answers up front as well. People do due diligence all the time, but we may not be thinking about it like that. For example, you may wish to buy a second-hand car. It'd be wise, before you actually go and buy it, to do some online reviews of the car itself. Maybe check out the seller and also actually check the car out to ensure it's in good working order. And that might include a test drive or taking it to the local repair shop or RACV or whatever equivalent it is in your state to make sure that it's in good working order. That's basically due diligence. But it's a concept which we use quite often in finances. But really, it can be used in any markets as well. Especially buying and selling property, for example. Let's use an example to highlight this concept of due diligence. Amy is a dietitian and is a seasoned investor. Her friend is considering investing in a company which is relatively new. She asks Amy about it and Amy is considering that company as well. But before Amy puts any money into the new company's stock, she needs to do a due diligence to understand what she's getting into and what is being advertised. It turns out the company that her friend recommended has one product, and that's a vitamin product, 
which can be infused into people to give them more energy, in quotations. So-called intravenous vitamin infusions. Now, when she conducted her due diligence, she notes that the process, the medication, or so-called vitamin infusions are not actually TGA-approved. She sees a potential risk to her investment. Although TGA approval may not be required for vitamin infusions in Australia, she feels that it's a legal nightmare if it becomes regulated and shut down, and she could lose all of her investments. So, after due diligence, she stays clear of this new company promoting their vitamin infusions. Now, in this case, Amy has looked at the company, looked at the product, looked at the financials, and decided, after doing her due diligence, the company is not for her to invest in. For Amy, her biggest concern is regulatory risk. She wishes her friend the best of luck and stays clear of this company. So who actually is involved in the due diligence process? It depends on the type of business or financial decision you want to make. If it's a retail investor who's considering buying a stock for, say, $10,000, you may wish to do it yourself. But if it's a company wanting to acquire another company, then they have a team of lawyers advisors, accountants who are engaged to do it for them. Now, if it's a property transaction that you wish to purchase, you may wish to engage a third party like a buyer's agent who may assist with this process. And that also depends on the value of the property. Now, if you're buying a medical practice, again, engaging a professional to do it for you who specialises in such processes might be helpful. Now, if you're buying cryptocurrency, you think due diligence is just rubbish and just following Cryptomaniac on YouTube and just follow what they do, because that's what everyone does. That's a really bad joke. Now, there are a number of people involved in performing a due diligence when it comes to financial markets. Equity analysts, fund managers, brokers and dealers, you, the individual investor, and companies. Now, is it actually illegal not to perform due diligence in Australia? And the answer to that question is, it depends. If you're a broker or financial dealer and you're selling something, I think it's important you perform a due diligence to ensure what you're selling is not a scam. Otherwise, you can get in major trouble. But there is a clause which may protect you if you've done your due diligence and did not find anything materially abnormal during your investigation. In America, it's actually enshrined in law called the 1933 Securities Act, where due diligence must be performed by brokers and dealers and institutions before they sell anything. All of the relevant material information is disclosed, but there's a clause which states if they can't find anything unusual and they've tried their best, then they're still okay to sell the product as long as they willingly didn't do anything wrong. Now, this is where it gets a bit tricky. Because when you think back to the 2008 global financial crisis, this is exactly what people didn't do but no one really got prosecuted. Big corporations basically made complex transactions called mortgage-backed securities to investors, knowing that the mortgages are junk mortgages which won't be paid back because they were lent to people who had no income. But yet, they got away with it. So take all this legislative crap with a grain of salt because when push comes to shove, if there are widespread issues in the system... I don't think there are any major penalties, especially if everything goes wrong, like the GFC. But there are penalties if maybe just one or two companies 
did the wrong thing. Interestingly, I had a look at the Australia's illegal logging laws and they have a systems-based approach when it comes to due diligence, which I thought was interesting when it comes to the process of logging. Some of the things loggers have to do is they've got to think about where the log is coming from. Have they been legally sourced? Avoid illegally logged timber. You've got to support local investments and profitability measures and jobs. And if companies didn't do this, there are significant penalties. Now, they don't need to formally supply any information to the Department of Agriculture about their due diligence processes, but they need to have evidence of having done their due diligence in case the Department of Agriculture comes around and does an audit. So even if loggers themselves have basically have a written statement saying that their logs are legally sourced, that's not sufficient. And companies which use raw materials to make products also need to make sure that they're not contributing to illegal logging. So they need to also do due diligence. I thought that was interesting when it comes to agriculture, how strict they are. So how do you perform due diligence when it comes to stocks and companies? This is more so for individual investors who are active investors. Now, I don't buy individual companies. So for me, I don't do much due diligence because I'm a passive investor. I'm not an active investor. Now, passive investors also have to do their due diligence, but you kind of have to do it once in a while. So it's not a huge portion of my time that I spend when I think about my investments. For example, I avoid thematic ETFs or, you know, thematic index funds and niche indexes. For me, My research suggests I only invest and feel comfortable in investing in broad-based index funds. And when I say broad-based, ASX 300, that's a broad-based index fund. S&B 500, that's a broad-based index fund. Now, I've done my due diligence, and that is, I want to buy everything. I just don't want to buy individual stocks. So why is due diligence important? From a buyer's perspective, This is to have some reassurance that their expectations on the purchase is actually correct. It also reduces your risk as a buyer. From a seller's perspective, this ensures to the purchaser that the seller has done their due diligence as well. Now, of course, you would take it with a grain of salt if you're a buyer accepting a due diligence done by the seller because it's in the seller's best interest to sell the product and service or stock or company. Now, the other benefit for the seller is because they do their own due diligence, they may actually discover that the company is actually worth more than what they initially thought it was, so they may revisit sales expectations. And it's not uncommon for sellers to prepare their due diligence report themselves. Now, is it expensive to do it? It depends on the size of the acquisition. If you're just buying a stock or a share, then you can just do it yourself and it's free. But if you're buying a business... You may want to get lawyers and accountants involved, and the cost is whatever they charge. Personally, I wouldn't be buying a business to run without getting an external opinion first, because money spent now is money saved later on. So what's the process? Step one, you've got to work out how big the company is, and that's market capitalization. What does it mean? It's basically the total value of the outstanding stocks of a company. You may find the larger the company, the less volatility the stock is and better the dividend income and prospects are. 
The smaller the company, the more volatile the stock is and the worse the dividend income revenue stream may be. And sometimes smaller companies are considered growth companies and don't pay a dividend at all. The reasons may be that larger companies are more established, have a diverse range and group of investors, so they tend to command more dividends. You can get all sorts of information and all of this regarding the market capitalization, share value and revenue stream from the company's quarterly or annual reports, or any of your brokerage companies also have such information, which you may have to pay for if it's super detailed, but they have it on hand to help you. Step two is, is the company making any profits? You'll need to look at the company income statements and look for these figures. Number one, net income. Number two, profit. Number three, total revenue. Number four, profit margins. And number five, operating expenses. And number six, return on equity. Now, all of these sound really complicated, but let's dissect each one of those out. What is net income? This is the gross income minus all the expenses associated with running the business. So, utilities, wages, interest, amortisation, etc., etc., and taxes. Another way of saying this is net profit. This is also called the bottom line. Number two, total revenue. This is also called the top line. This is basically all the income generated from sales of goods and services. And it's important to understand that total revenue is not the same as total income. Income is generally quantified after expenses, whilst revenue is just the total of what the company made. It sits on the top of the financial statements, hence the term top line. Number three, profit margins. This is basically the total amount of money made per dollar of sales. If the company states their profit margin is 20%, it just means for every $1 of sales generated, they're making 20 cents profit. That's pretty awesome. Now, within this term, there's also gross profit margin, operating profit margin, and net profit margin. Now, the net profit margin is probably the most important profit margin of them all because it accounts for expenses. Number four, operating expenses. This is what it costs to run the business. It's often termed OPEX. O-P-E-X. It includes rent, equipment, maintenance, inventory costs, marketing, payroll, research and development, insurance and step costs. Basically, recurring costs will stay the same up until a certain point and then becomes more and more after that point is exceeded. Number five, return on equity, ROE. This is when you take into account the net income and the average shareholder equity. Now, the average shareholder equity is basically company's assets minus its liabilities, and you take the net income and divide it by the average shareholder equity. A return on equity on itself doesn't tell you very much, but what you need to do is compare it to the sector's return on equity as a reference point to see if your company is on par or above or below the par compared to your sector. Now, the most important thing about any of these things when you analyse a company's financial statements is you need to look at trends rather than any particular year. I think about a five-year trend is reasonable, but you may wish to look for longer time periods. That's a lot of geeky stuff I've covered, and I've covered it in a lot more geeky, geeky manner in my past life as DevRucker Personal Finance in episode 76, 77, and 78 if you really want to geek out on this sort of topics. Now, I'm not an expert active investor. I don't actively invest at all, nor am I a business owner or a business person. My niche is personal finance. I don't routinely dig this sort of stuff, and I think personal finance is completely different 
to business financial concepts. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners of this channel that are far better at business finance than what I am. Step three, are there any competitors in the industry? Now that you know how big the company is and how much money it makes in profit, you need to compare to the industry that it's in. Remember, numbers don't mean anything unless you compare it. Questions to ask is, is the company the leader in its field or are they catching up? You need to compare the profits and profit margins of the company to other competitors so you can make an objective decision on whether the company is actually doing well. There's no point having a profit, but then realising that it's actually an industry poor performer and other competitors are absolutely kicking its ass. This means you not only have to perform due diligence on the company of interest, but also its competitors. Let's use an example to highlight these points. Amy is a GP registrar and has set her final fellowship exams. She's thankfully passed. She's single and aged 32 and has no consumer debt. She has a mortgage of about half a million dollars with a debt of $380 on the home. She has approached by her supervisor to consider buying into the GP practice she's worked in as a registrar. She has never owned a business before and doesn't really know how to start. She engages a professional to look over the financial statements of the practice. The analysis reveals the following. It's a four GP full-time equivalent practice with three reception staff and two nursing staff. There is a pathology company renting the premises on site. The owner is renting the premises and doesn't own it. The net profit of the practice is around $60,000 per year. Now, I'm making these figures up. I'm not sure if this is good or bad for a GP practice that's four full-time equivalent, probably on the lower side. So bear with me as I try and highlight a particular concept. The numbers here don't really matter. What she does notice, though, is that out of the four doctors, two are registrars, including herself. Once she becomes a fellow, the percentage margin for her will increase, so the net profit may actually reduce if she takes over. Overall, it's good for her as she makes more money, but not great for the practice. She also notices that the pathology rental company contract is likely to expire in 12 months, and there's no talk or plans to renew it. The owner doesn't own the premises, which means there's a slight risk of being evicted, although that's very low. And due to the Medicare rebate freeze, she's noted over the last three years, earnings have stagnated and profits have been reasonably steady. The practice doesn't have any scope to expand with more sessions or doctors because there isn't any physical space to do so. More competitors and larger practices are also moving into the area. So Amy decides to put all of this together and it's probably not the right practice for her to buy into and decides against it. Amy has done her due diligence. Step four is ratios. Look at them. PE, PB and PEG. Ratios are useful to look at and compare to industry sectors and standards. Some industry sectors have specific ratios which are benchmarked. The PE ratio is price to earnings ratio. The PB ratio is price to book ratio. And the PEG ratio is price to earnings to growth ratio. Let's look at each of these ratios in a bit more detail. And remember, I cover this in detail in episodes 76 to 78 for more in-depth analysis about these ratios, if you're interested. So what is a PE ratio? The advantage of this ratio is that it can be used to compare itself over a time course period and also against other industry standards. To calculate this, you need to know the market value of the share and the earnings per share. The earnings per share is a company's profit divided by the total outstanding number of shares. 
Most of this information is available via your brokerage firm or a website like Yahoo Finance. To understand this concept, let's have a look at some of the PE ratios at some of the large Australian companies at the time of recording this episode in June 2022, just when the markets have crashed. Commonwealth Bank, PE ratio of 17.2, NAB 14.1, Westpac 14.28, ANZ 9.8. And notice even among the banks, they're all very different. So you need to compare them the same way. And that's why PE ratio is a good comparison tool. Now, let's have a look at some of the mega corporations in the United States. Apple, 21.5, Microsoft, 26.5, Dell, 5.93, Tesla, 87.82, and Amazon, 41.2. Again, notice the huge variability. People are betting on Tesla and Amazon way more than Apple, Microsoft, and Dell. So you may say that Tesla is just overvalued based on its P-E ratio when compared to the other companies. Or you may say Apple is relatively undervalued when compared to Tesla based on its P-E ratio. It all depends on your viewpoint. But of course, just taking one metric is not enough. You need to dig a little deeper and get some of the detailed metrics on this issue. So what a P-E ratio tells you is how much you're willing to pay to earn $1 per share. So in Apple's case, for example, which has a P-E ratio of 21.5, you're willing to pay around $21.50 to earn $1. In Dell's case, it's only $5.90 to earn $1. Now, what's the PB ratio? This is similar to the P-E ratio in that it's a ratio and can be used to compare companies. But in this case, you take the average market share price and divide it by the book value of a company per share. In other words, you're looking at what the market is valuing the company by its share price and what the company is actually valued. Again, you need to look at this figure not in isolation, but in comparison to the industry sectors and past numbers. And lastly, the PEG ratio. This is called the price to earnings to growth ratio. This is an important metric and finds out what the growth of the PE ratio has been over the specified period of time. This provides more of a complete picture. Makes sense, because if the P-E ratio is stagnant and not growing, then it just means the value of the company is also stagnating to some extent. Remembering, we want our capital and income derived from that capital to grow, which means profits of companies should also be growing steadily over the long term. These are just three of the simple ratios which you need to learn about and analyse for the company you may wish to purchase when you do your due diligence. Step five, checking out the management. It's really important to find out who's actually running the company. Who are the managers? Are they diverse? Do they have a vested interest in the company's success? If management members don't own any shares in the company that they're running, that's a red flag. Are the managers founders, which is a lot of new companies have, or are they just seasoned executives pinched from another company? Probably the biggest recent example of a manager or CEO of a company who basically ran a Ponzi scheme was Nikola. Let's analyse Nikola and how things went wrong. The company's name was Nikola and the founder's name was Trevor Milton. In 2020, Milton resigned as CEO and chairman after the SEC found evidence that he was actually committed securities fraud. Now, the SEC are the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States, kind of like the ASIC in Australia. 
In 2021, he was indicted and was released on a $100 million bail. So what actually happened? Nikola Motors was a company founded by Trevor Milton, right? And the aim was to build electric cars and hydrogen-powered trucks. It turns out it was an elaborate lie. Nikola 1, which was unveiled, wasn't actually a fully functional truck when it was unveiled. It didn't have any electronics and couldn't run by itself, but no one knew it at the time. Then they released this video of the truck in motion. The wording in motion was critical. It wasn't running. It was rather just rolling down a gentle slope, which was not visible to the naked eye. And of course, it was a media stunt. So technically, the truck was in motion, but it was just being pushed from the hill. Then a short-selling company called Hindenburg Research published their evidence that Trevor Milton's Nikola wasn't really producing any real products, and it was all just a hoax. This set off a chain reaction of events, which led to his arrest for securities and investment fraud. Now, Nikola is still a company, and they're actively running. They haven't really released any products, and the share price peaked at about $66 in mid-2020. But now, is trading around 5 to 6 bucks per share. What this shows is you need to really interrogate the management of the companies. If not, you may lose your investment. It takes a lot of work to do this, and if you're an active investor, it's a big commitment to keep doing this sort of research all the time. Now, let's take a bit of a break, and when I come back, we'll continue to learn more about how to do proper due diligence on companies and stocks. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Now, welcome back. Just another thanks to Alters Financial for getting behind My Millennium Money Medical. We can't do this without them. Whether you're established in your career with a solid income and looking for next steps or after advice about buying into, selling or opening your first practice, Alters Financial can help. Alters is offering a complimentary 15-minute chat for anyone who wants to discuss their scenario with their professional team. Click the link in the show notes to find out more. Now, let's go on and discuss more about due diligence. Number six, balance sheet. This is when you may wish to look at the balance sheet of the company and learn how to read it. You probably don't need to read every single line, but the main figures which are important are relevant. 
The balance sheet is designed to tell the investor how much the company is actually worth, its book value. And usually a balance sheet is prepared quarterly and distributed to its investors. Now, it should have the date in which it was prepared, so it's more of a snapshot of the company. The main reason it's called a balance sheet is because the numbers have to balance. Now, there's a number of formulas that exist, but the accounting definition is basically assets equals liabilities plus owner's equity. So assets can be cash or cash equivalents, prepaid expenses, inventory, securities, accounts receivable, land, patents, trademarks, brands, goodwill, intellectual property, equipment, and plant. And liabilities can be payroll expenses, rent payments, utility bills, debt financing, accounts payable by company, leases, loans, bond payments, coupons, deferred tax liabilities, and any company pensions that are liable. Usually a balance sheet should have a comparison of previous balance sheets, and it's usually the previous financial year. Again, there's a theme here, comparisons. It's really important. Step seven, analyzing history. Now, historical performances, and it doesn't always equal to much, but you may wish to look at the historical performance of a company or company share price and make a judgment call. In investing, there's always this saying, past performance doesn't equate to future performance levels. Well, past performance is relevant. And if a company has been doing well over the long term in the past, then why would it not do so well in the future unless they really stuff things up? So again, the counter argument to that is if a company has performed really well in the past, doesn't always mean it'll perform well in the future. But it's unlikely a good quality company that does well over the long term can fudge their numbers over the long term. It has happened before, but it's unlikely. So taking a company like CBA, for example, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, which has existed for 110 years, it's very unlikely they would be fudging their numbers for that long and gotten away with it. So you may wish to look at their track record, maybe for the last 10 or 20 years, and then use that information on stock prices to make a decision about whether you think CBA is a good investment. Now, that's not the only thing you need to take into account, the stock price, but that's one of the things that you need to take into account. Step eight, future planning to dilute the stock. Now, you may wish to find out if there are any future plans to dilute the stock pool. Stock dilution is when companies issue new shares. They don't take any shares away from you as an investor, but it just means the existing shareholders now own a small percentage of the overall stock pool. That means the equity is diluted. This can happen also when existing company stock option holders exercise their rights to buy more stock at a discounted price. This is actually one of the ways executives are compensated and are attracted to senior leadership roles. Let's use an example to highlight this concept, and I'm going to use pizza. Amy is an occupational therapist, and on a Friday night, she decides to order three large pizzas for a six-person party. During the night, she notices her friends took it upon themselves and decided to invite a few more people. Now the total number of the party is actually 10 people, not six. Amy has only ordered three pizzas. This equates to the total equity of the company. This means the pizzas have to be cut further into smaller pieces for everyone to eat. 
They can't just feed the initial six people and let the other four people watch while the other six people eat. Now, interestingly, I was reading about this and apparently this sort of thing happens a lot in Sweden. Is that right? Basically, if there's any Swedish people listening to this episode, I'm very keen to hear that this is actually false information that I've read because what I've read and what I've been told by some people in Europe is that when people, you know, let's say I come to your house in Sweden, um, it's not unusual that you guys eat and I don't eat. I don't have any food to eat. So, um, hopefully I've read it wrong and hopefully people have told me completely fibs when it comes to this sort of stuff because it'd be really awkward to invite someone over and then not actually have enough food to feed them. Uh, but specifically in Sweden, apparently it's not unusual. Um, now, that's not ideal, but um, in this particular case with the pizza story, you can see that everyone now gets a smaller slice because there's a lot more people from 10 to 6 to 10 people, which means the people that have you know, be eating are not going to get enough pizzas and therefore they may still be hungry. That is, their appetite has been diluted. That's kind of like how stock dilution works when it comes to equity in a company. Step nine, expectations in the media and markets. This is when you may wish to Google the company and dig a little bit more about what others think of it and what others have price expectations for it and what others are thinking the future growth of the company might be. This is a holistic picture. You've done all the research yourself up until this point, but you may wish to consider what others think before you take that final plunge and buy that company's stock. Step 10 is examining your risk. I've done an episode on financial risk in episode 75 if you're interested. What are the industry-wide risks associated with buying this company? What are the company's specific risks? What's your personal risk? You need to determine all of these individually. Analyze the company's long-term ESG prospects, perhaps, or is there any potential legal or regulatory issues? Remember Amy and the vitamin infusions? She very quickly realized that regulation might crush that investment company. Are management making the right decisions for the company that you want to buy? This is where you put your devil's advocate on and try and pick at the company to see if there are holes which can be exploited. Think about the worst-case scenario. So these are all the things that you could do when it comes to due diligence. There are 10 steps. And really, that's how you analyze a business or a company. If you're interested specifically about practice ownership and some of the things to consider, have a listen to episode 220, where I discuss practice ownership and things to consider. Now, we've looked at all the steps to do when you're doing due diligence and companies and stocks. Let's look at some of the red flags you may encounter And this is particularly useful for small investors or those that are thinking about buying into a business. Number one, if a seller or a business does not wish to disclose their reasons for selling, financial statements, licenses or permits or staff contacts, then you really have to think twice and ask yourself, is the seller hiding anything? Number two, if the seller doesn't agree for you to do your own due diligence, that's a massive red flag. Number three, If the seller won't introduce you to any of their landlords or staff or suppliers, red flag. Number four, they're currently involved in legal proceedings. That's obviously a red flag. Number five, are super keen to close the deal as quickly as possible. And this happens a lot in real estate when you think about it. And you have to wonder what the motivation is behind this of selling the property so quickly. Is there something about the property the seller doesn't want you to find out? Landscape overlay, 
vegetation overlay, sloping overlays, heritage protection, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Number six, think about the management. Do they have questionable reputations? Google the owners first. In fact, one of the things that I used to do before I, you know, signed up to a clinic or something like that is I would Google every doctor that worked at the clinic. Um, and look, I'm not saying Google is a source of truth, but it gives you a bit of an idea about, well, is this a dodgy practice or are there dodgy doctors or nurses or allied health practitioners at work here? Have they been in the news? So I often click on the media icon and the news icon when I Google stuff. I think it gives you a bit of an idea about who these people are and are these the sorts of people that I want to be associated with if I'm going to be working there as a doctor. That's what I used to do. And I still do that, uh, particularly, you know, if I want to learn about someone, I Google them. When buying a business, you can Google due diligence uh, checklists. There's heaps out there. Um, You can have a look at it and it may come in handy. And I'm sure there are ones specific to your industry as well. Now, some of the resources I use to prepare for this episode, because I'm not very good at business finances, Investopedia, the Queensland government, they have a really nice due diligence checklist, actually. Um, Google it. It's really good. Uh, and they also have a site on how to value a business as well. So if you're interested in that sort of stuff. And there's a really good website called Corporate Finance Institute. Now, just a heads up, I get really uncomfortable talking about business concepts on this podcast, and I don't really focus on them very much because this is a channel dedicated for personal finance, but I also think it's in fact to be useful to be educated and empowered and entertained when it comes to business financial concepts as much as possible. Now, that's about it for this episode. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you may be using. I'll leave a five-star review on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review. And in that nature, I found this wonderful review by Aussie Squirrel, who writes, factual conservative opinion, great podcast. Dev mirrors the conservative investment opinion of some of the world's best, but explains it in a no frills, easy to understand way. His factual content is something hard to find these days. Now that's an incredible review. World's best. Uh, that's I'm um, very flattered. I, I, I don't think I'm one of the world's best. But basically, one of the feedbacks that I've received, which I think is really good feedback and I really appreciate receiving feedback about in my channel is, it's no frills. It's factual. It's content. I don't sort of sugarcoat things and all that sort of stuff. And I think that's really important because I want people to get the right information to make the right decisions when it comes to their business or personal finance decisions. And I don't sell anything. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm a clinician. So I look at it from a clinician's point of view to try and simplify these concepts so that other clinicians um, and frankly, any profession can understand and expand on that knowledge and use that knowledge to make decisions. Now, of course, you need to seek advice through your accountants, lawyers or financial advisors, but you need to understand the fundamentals and the concepts before you walk into that meeting. And hopefully this channel empowers you to do that. And if you get told something that you think is incorrect or you want to clarify, you may wish to say, hey, actually, can you explain a little bit more about this? Because from my understanding, I don't think that's possible. And really try and pin them down and try and ask them these questions because that's what you're paying them to do. So thank you very much, Aussie Squirrel, for a wonderful review. Um, Now, I just checked, I've achieved about 338 ratings on Apple Podcasts at the time of recording. 
Um, and I really want to get to 500. So if you're listening to this, if you think it's great and you want to leave a rating, please leave a five-star rating and please leave a positive review. It makes a big difference to the podcast so that people can actually find it. Uh, and if you haven't rated it yet, please do so. Uh, and remember, five-star rating, uh, you know, don't give me a four-star rating. I want to really maintain my high ratings as much as possible. So the more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to these types of episodes, which is free. So please keep them coming. And I really try and put as much thought and effort into these episodes as I possibly can. My name's Dev Raga from My Millennium Money Medical. Until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 